Trigger warning, Death and Friends is not a podcast for the light of heart. Many dark and serious subjects will come up. Listener discretion is advised. Skeleton Army Angel here. This is Nash. Or is it? We have another not-so-fun episode. Oh. The season may be the academic one, but it has taken quite the dark turn. That being said, sorry, but this stuff is important. Don't worry, there's still jokes, just not as many. Speaking of jokes, it's time to mess with Angel. Um, ¿Qué pasó? What happened? I don't know what's happening. Hey, Angel, you know that part of the book that, like, introduces the beginning of the story? Yeah, just... Oh, you mean, like, the, the preface? About that. It's pronounced preface. Motherfuck! Hello, Skeleton Army. I'm a silly little boy who can't speak English, apparently. Angel. And this is Sir Budface McNuggets himself, Nash. I've asked you repeatedly to call me by my full title, Lord General Sir Buttface McNuggets, Commander of the Unholy Legion of the 13th Circle. Oh. Uh, the third. Okay, moving on. Today's episode is a no bueno situation where we talk about the topic that is slowly eating away at us. Till it leaves nothing, only emptiness. Darkness. Smelling like a batch of cookies that... <laughs> at first you're excited, but then you have a bite and... Betrayal. Those aren't chocolate chips. Those are grapes. Wrinkly carcasses left to dry out in the sun. This is an oatmeal raisin cookie. And it tastes and looks... Like a lie. What? We're talking about capitalismo, baby! Greed is good. I enjoy destroying lives. Greed is right. And I want more, more, more. For the annual Walmart Associates celebration, James Corden came back to host for the second time. Thanks to a plot device that allowed me to say what and then immediately know what we're talking about today, it's time for one of the largest industrial disasters in U.S. history. I was too excited. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. We've already covered an industrial accident, but hey, why not another one? Yeah, but that one was caused by callousness and inept management. This one was caused by... Hang on. Let me check my... Oh, no. Go ahead and paint the picture, my lord. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was located on the top of three stories of the Ash Building in New York. The Ash Building? History has a fucked up sense of humor. Jesus Christ. The building is in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of New York City. New York, New York. You hear about this? One town, a million troubles. The big all of itself. You can make it there... You can make it anyway. <clears throat> uh, it has two international airports. Filled with pizza rats and um, uh, okay, so we actually don't know that much about New York, actually. Yeah, yeah just not like, even a little bit. No, honestly, it's all like a um, name. It was pizza rats? I've been there once. Um, that's where the Knicks play. I don't even know who the Knicks are. It's fair. There you go. <laughs> Is that the name of a horse? Okay, but first, we can speak about New York at the time of the fire. The year is 1911, and at this time, we're a year away from the laws of buoyancy taking down the Titanic. London is currently radicalizing in the large continent, and I think Nash just turned 52. (laughs) (laughs) The script says 40, and all of it hurts my feelings. (laughs) It was a very good year. Quiet, you. It's in the middle of the American Industrial Revolution, with immigrants arriving to Ellis Island and getting their names changed, because if you know anything about white Americans, they will call you whatever the fuck they want. 
and it's also really shitty. And how about go fuck yourself, you fucking piece of shit? Jesus, Angel, huh? just chill out. You feel good about yourself when you do that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> fuck you. I'm sorry. I I saw red. It's okay, bud. Back to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. In 1911, the factory holds about 500 workers, mostly immigrants of Jewish and Italian descent who work a minimum of nine hours a day and at least seven hours on Saturday. Oh, okay. So they get they get Sunday off, right? It's good. I'm sure the owners, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, would love to have them work on a Sunday. But, you know, fucking Jesus out here ruining beautiful production time. Jesus, they're really wilding at this time, huh? You can hear Ayn Rand gushing from the thought. Ooh. <laughs> hey, um, gross. Mm. Well, at least they got, like, overtime, right? And they, they got paid well, considering it's skilled labor. But, right, Nash? Brace yourself. I mean, what the fuck is even a shirtwaist, honestly? It's an old-timey blouse. Thanks. To answer your original question, they're paid at most, like, $12 a week. Oh, Jesus, that's literally nothing. Adjusted for inflation, that's... $375, and that's before they had materials removed from their pay. Yeah, the, the statement still stands. It doesn't help that the factory is in the Garment District of New York, and it has over a thousand different manufacturers in Manhattan alone. With the constant flux of immigrants, just about everybody's replaceable. So you also have to take into account how fucking unregulated all this shit is. It's literally cheaper to just replace a worker than to make the workplace safer. So people just kind of have to, you know, deal with it. Yay. Floor managers are complete assholes who won't let anyone take breaks, even for the bathroom. This is an important detail that's going to come back later. Man, you and I would not fare well at these No, times. no, we, uh... No. Nope. Jesus. By the way, if you think the story ends in, like, a strong union being built and workers' rights being changed, no. No. Wow, spoiler alert. It doesn't happen. Yeah. Not until later in the story, in the worst possible way, it could happen. So you're like, oh, so it might happen. Yeah, but like at what terrible, just, awful cost? Yeah. It's a thing. You'll, you'll see in a bit. It's We're going to get just get mentally prepared now. A lot of workers from the Triangle Factory attempt to unionize in 1909 with over 30,000 fellow workers from other factories joining, wanting higher pay, less hours, and a formal union actually created. And so the owners, seeing all this happen, losing money, do what they do best. Work with the union leaders and create a fair working environment. No, no, no. They're, uh, they're ordering double pump extra venti with the bullshit they're on. They, uh, they bribe police officers and gangsters to beat the shit out of the people protesting. That sounds more accurate. Yeah, and while some gains are made in other factories, including wage increases and better hours, the Triangle Sherways factory resists the strike and moves right along with being massive, pig-loving dick rockets. <gasps> Butter? But before all that... It's Saturday, March 25th, 1911, and workers are living their best lives, working in a sweatshop, making negative money. As the workday is ending, a fire starts in the scrap bin of discarded clothing under a worker's table. Nobody knows exactly how, but more than likely it was a lit cigarette from someone trying to sneak a break because they're not allowed to go outside to take breaks. In fact, all the doors except one were locked because, God forbid, anyone leave early or rest or... Steel. Quick spoiler alert. It's discovered during the fire investigation that at most, all the years that the factory was open, only $14 worth of merchandise was ever stolen. 14. 14? 14. With the main entrance being legitimately guarded by armed guards. 14. Told you that would come back. Mind you, the owners of the factory already had four suspicious fires before at their different companies. Four. Wait, hang on. Um, stop repeating numbers. Uh, the, these assholes did this shit on purpose for insurance money? The fire marshal concludes that 
the usual form of arson, leaving electronic engines running around a lot of loose scraps of fabric, not the culprit here. Oh, okay. It's pretty sad that there's like a usual way this yeah. happens. Like, they see this shit happen. Jesus Christ. Uh, well, that means at least that Blank and Harris could, for once, say it was not them. You know, it's like, we caught you on the counter. Wasn't me. <laughs> caught you banging on the sofa. Wasn't me. <laughs> I don't forget the rest. Okay. $14. $14. So also here comes the not fun part where we describe the fire itself. So that's probably going to be the last laugh for a little bit. So be ready for that. Enjoy it. I hope you enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. At 445, five whole minutes after the fire starts, the fire alarm goes off. And naturally, everybody calm as shit. So zen. It's just like. Everybody's so single file. Mm, just, just like everybody calmly. Kidding. Everyone panics. In fact, the fire quickly engulfs the entire eighth floor, but luckily, the majority of the eighth floor escape the inferno. The fire grows exponentially because it's damn near the most flammable place on earth. Fabric straps everywhere, all the materials are made of paper, and even the dust is extra flammable. Mm. The place becomes a furnace. Both owners get warned about the fire via a phone call, and they escape up to the roof, because of course they do. But they fail to warn the entire ninth floor. So, oh, we have a whole ninth floor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Their families were actually there that day, by the way, in like a weird, like, take your family to work day. Like, come, sweetie, look how I exploit people so you could have candy and other bullshit. Watch them burn as we realize we didn't warn them deliberately. Yeah, the <laughs> Max Blank and um, Max Harris. Yeah. They're from Monopoly North Carolina. men. <laughs> yeah, they're Monopoly men, yeah. At 4.45, right after the five minutes, uh, the fire reaches the ninth floor. The flames have completely blocked the unlocked stairway. Uh, workers on the eighth floor attempt to call and warn them, but due to all the machinery, no one hears the phone ring. 200 people work on the ninth floor. Workers attempt to use fire escapes, and while many successfully use the escapes, the owners of the building use poor quality iron. and the heat of the fire and cheap materials, the fire escapes themselves collapse, sending over 20 people 90 feet below where they die on impact. While the New York Fire Department was quick to respond, they don't actually have the equipment to handle a modern skyscraper, because, of course. So they end up having ladders falling 30 feet short of the fire, and their hoses aren't strong enough to reach the floors that are actively burning. The only means of escape at this point is the elevator, which in modern times, of course, is the worst goddamn idea you could possibly have. And it's most likely due to the following scenario. The elevators are designed to operate mostly manually. Elevator operator Joseph Cito saves many lives by taking trips up and down the building on the elevator to grab people by the dozens. But the fire and smoke quickly take over the ninth floor. Workers pry open the elevator doors and attempt to shimmy their way down to steel cables, which if you know anything about steel cables and grabbing them, they are not meant for climbing. With a mix of exhaustion, smoke, inhalation, and just sheer volume, many people fall to their deaths, crushing the only way to escape and destroying the elevator with the sheer weight and impact of their corpses. Dozens of workers attempt to bulldoze their way through the doors and the stairwells that are locked. Ironically, the fire left both of the stairwells completely unscathed. When firefighters make it up to the ninth floor, they struggle to open the door as the pile of bodies, crushed after being trampled and asphyxiated, are blocking the doorway. These were the people who died attempting to escape through the available exits. Many others attempt to jump from the building onto the nets that the New York Fire Department sets up to catch people, but even those are inadequate. As the nets break and tear from the sheer force of someone falling 90 feet, many of them already on fire. The bodies of the people that jump begin to pile up around the factory. William Gunn Shepard, a reporter at the tragedy, states, I learned a new sound that day. A sound more horrible than description can picture. The thud of a speeding, living body on a stone sidewalk. 
It takes 30 minutes to put the fire out, with the 8th and 9th floor essentially turned to ash. 146 people are killed, 123 women, 23 men, with the youngest being only 14 years old. Bodies of the victims are taken to Charity's Pier, also called Misery Lane, located on 26th and the East River, for families to identify the bodies. Weeks later, there is a public memorial as over 500,000 people gather in the street to try to make sense of the tragedy. The owners, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, are charged with manslaughter. But of course, they're found not guilty. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. See, you'd think it's due to money and connections, but it's mostly through technicality, which is the best way to win. Just the only real way to win a trial. Mm -hmm. Technically. There's no way to prove that they ordered the staircases to be locked, and that led to so many people dying. So the trial itself becomes totally sensationalized. Their lawyer casts doubt on one of the survivors, and they create the case that since the owners were unaware that the doors were locked, they can't possibly be at fault. So they walk away scot-free. Rich bastards. No scots for them. They're found liable for wrongful death suits in 1913, and they pay out the survivors $75 each, which today is about $2,000. By the way, the trial is just a super happy fun time. On the first day of the trial, relatives of the victims fill the courtroom building. You know, just stare bullets into them, because, of course, they absolutely deserve that. On the second day, a lot of the women bum-rush them when they leave an elevator, screaming in point-blank range, murderers, murderers, give us back our children. The police get called in to protect the men. You know, like cowards. So remember how they couldn't prove that the owners are the ones that lock the door so they go free? Yeah, that's a, that's a little off. Yeah, that's the judge's fault. Ye old Judge Thomas Crane makes the jury convict because of the way he interprets that law. Ah yes, the law stating all doors leading in or to any such factory shall be constructed as to outwardly open where practicable and shall not be locked, bolted, or fastened during working hours. Mm. Super unclear. Yeah, very, very shitty. Blank and Harris, of course, they get away with it. Though they are chased all the way to the nearest subway station in a angry mob for blood kind of way. Not in the, you know boy band, I want your body kind of way. And on a side note, they get in trouble a few years later. Not not the wrongful death suit. I mean, like, they're forced to pay even bigger fines than before because of at that point there are reforms and it's illegal to have doors locked at all. And of course, they locked their workers in again. It's almost like rich people don't have to learn lessons. Wow. But the rest of us learn those lessons for them mm. by burning to death. You know that saying. You know, that, that, old, that old chestnut? Yeah. It's my malo. I don't understand one thing, though. Now, which part? The chasing them around, like, Beatlemania part. Oh, um, like, people are chasing them to attack them, to, like, rip them apart, quarter them, probably. Hmm. As opposed to the way that women chase you in Salem, calling you both daddy and mother, trying to send you nudes. My loyal fans. Moving on. As you just heard, this is where we'll attempt to be funny again. I mean, probably. I don't know. It's pretty bad. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's awful. It's, it's, it's awful. awful. Yeah, it's not good. Genuinely trying to make light of this situation is uh, damn near impossible. So, uh, yeah, we're uh, failing right now. Yeah, literally. Yeah, it's um, mm -hmm. it's due to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. A sweeping change to many American laws take place. This is arguably the most effective campaign to change laws ever created. That is until about a decade later when a certain someone finishes their biking tour across America and creates a much bigger change. Ruins a lot of lives. Wayne Wheeler, you piece of shit. You piece of shit. Season 3, episode 2, Wayne Wheeler and the Childhood Trauma. Prohibition. In New York, most people blame those in power. How could the city's government simply ignore the fact that this factory is a death trap? How? Negligence, Nash. Probably some bribing. Like the mob? Worse. 
Worse? Worse. Worse? Worse. 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 This is where Tammany Hall comes in. Tammany Hall is the biggest political party that controls New York at the time. And they're very pro-business. <gasps> yeah. They hate unions. And in fact, it's the Tammany cops and gangsters that actually beat up those protesting the conditions of the Triangle Factory. They control New York City and New York State 010108. They did this through corruption and general all-around fuckery. So their power is damn near absolute. Except that this time Tammany Hall is starting to lose power due to most of his constituents being the Italian and Jewish immigrants that moved into the neighborhoods where Tammany Hall districts are. With the threat of loss of control and the general progressive thinkers joining their ranks, what were once the people literally fighting the workers, like literally like fisticuffs, are now the ones that push legislation to help them. They, along with community and labor leaders, influenced the New York State Legislature to enact a law creating the Factory Investigating Commission, the FIC. Not the current FIC, <laughs> a watchdog agency with sweeping powers to probe labor conditions throughout the state. We're skipping a lot of nuance and detail here, but generally that's that's what happens. The FIC investigated over 2,000 factories in nine cities across the state. Most of those essentially carbon copies of the conditions of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. It's from these investigations with hundreds of workers' testimony and accounts that many of the modern fire safety laws, as well as many of the labor laws, are enacted. Hell yeah, brother. Progress. By the end of 1911, within months, 15 bills are drafted for the aforementioned fire codes and labor laws for women and children, with eight of those becoming laws. By 1915, 36 of the introduced bills that they made over that period of time become law until the committee disbands. New York pioneered sprinkler systems, child labor laws, created a Department of Labor and Workers' Count, making New York the state with the strongest labor laws. Luckily, at this time, there's another New York politician that makes his way onto the national stage and begins to implement these ideas nationwide. He just he just rolled right in there. Jesus Christ. Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> Franklin Roosevelt even brings the members of the Labor Committee with him to the White House. And that includes Francis Perkins. Yes, Francis Perkins is the head of the majority of the labor movements in New York. She's the one that brings the fight to Tammany Hall and the one that after years of lobbying gets Tammany Hall to help workers. She was the head of the New York Labor Committee, and President Roosevelt makes her Secretary of Labor. With her help, someone who rose from the genuine grassroots movement, she and other former FIC committee members create the New Deal, which is enacted between 1933 and 1939. It implements a lot of the same laws and regulations nationwide, which help create many social service programs, including Social Security and a minimum wage. Well, it is not ideal that most laws and benefits we have today in regards to labor are written in blood. <laughs> Actually, that's all I got. If the fire taught us anything, it's that organizing is key. If we compare ourselves to the situations before our own, we could say, well, it could be worse. Well, it could be a whole hell of a lot better, too. And on that glass half, whatever you want to see, note, that's the episode. A special thanks to you, our favorite listener. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A rate and review would... Make me happy. Let's go. You can also follow us on socials. I am at Gorilla Jokes. G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A Jokes. And I'm at It's Nashville. You can also follow the podcast where we drop incredibly specific memes and unhinged selfies at Death and Friends Podcast. Do you want to live deliciously? Yeah. Become a member of the Skeleton Army and join us on Patreon. We use it to cover our sound guy's medical bills. In order to properly write medical facts, we expose Dom to all the illnesses and ways to die we talk about on the show. What did we do this week, Ash? We gave him better benefits and an overall better schedule. 
Did, did we though? I don't know. Maybe. Who cares? Speaking of Patreon, it is time to honor a member at the Brendan Fraser level. Praise be Brianna Lee. Praise be Brendan Fraser. Mm-hmm. So check it out at patreon.com slash deathandfriends. For more information, visit deathandfriends.org. Join us as we make the entire internet worse. Hey, y'all. This was a bit more serious of an episode. We tried to make fun of it. Well, not of it. Made, have fun with it, I should say. But here, thing is, death, tricky to talk about. So please remember, you are loved, you matter, and if you don't want to be your own friend, we will happily be your friend. And I just want to say, you absolutely killed it this week. Like, oh, 11 out of 10. Just genuinely i bow down to you you are great yeah and if and if you're like uh actually this week was terrible i'm like yeah it was and you live you're still here survivor fuck yeah brother yes until next time skeleton army stay spooky love you love you love you more nope this has been a knavery inc podcast go to knaveryinc.com for more details executive produced by jacob duffy hallblad audio design by dominic guanzon themes and transitions by amy doe the fuck is a knave? Right, on three. Uno, dos, tres. It's been a really, really messed up week. Seven <laughs> days of torture, seven days of bitter. My girlfriend cheated on me. No, are we not getting this reference? She's no. a California dime, but it's time for me to quit her. La, la, la. Whatever. Oh, this song. La, la, la. It doesn't matter. You're old. Yes. Um, <laughs> Death? We're talking about capitalismo, baby. Let me do that again. We're talking about capitalismo, baby. Sounded exactly the same. <laughs> That's racist, Nash. <laughs> Woo! Death? As you just heard, this is where we're attempt to be funny again. I said that like I was super drunk. Yeah. Let me see your titties. All right. I got whiskey dick, but for your mouth. <clears throat> that wasn't a comparison is, I is feel like making. Is whiskey badge a thing? Is that a- <laughs> no. <clears throat> death the Tammany cops nope they hated unions and in fact it's the Tammany <laughs> we're so close <laughs> Trampampoli get your shit together Trampampoli <laughs> you keep going to Tammany <laughs> to Tammany well that's how it's sort of spelled right here it, okay. Tammany Tammany they hate unions and in fact it they hate you too, apparently. <laughs> they hate me too. Death? I love how I got to say it's pronounced preface, and now everyone's going to be like, nice lisp. <laughs> uh, <laughs> preface. Preface. Yeah, I can only imagine how that's going to go for me. Uh, I mean... Hello, skeleton army. Death? Thanks to a plot device that allowed me to say what, and then immediately know what we are talking about today, it's time for the one of the... It, it, it is time it for is one time of the in, in, in the articles. Do you ever the dream? And then and then in the dream. <laughs> that you were the... No, that fucking See, this kid. is what you get for dressing like a cholo. What does that mean? I was instantly offended and then I was like, wait, I don't know that word. You don't know what a cholo is? No. It's the dudes whose accents I've been doing this whole time. Hey, hey dog. Hey, dog. Okay, hey, I see it now. And I... You see it now? <laughs> I ate tacos for yeah. dinner in my defense. No, <laughs> no, that's worse. No, why would you say that out loud? <laughs> what kind of tacos? Death? The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. 
You said that too excited. I know. Death? Yeah, I'm sure the owner's Matt. I almost want to say Matt LeBlanc every single fucking time. Stop saying LeBlanc. It's also Matt no and love. not Max. But yes. Yeah. Jesus. It's fucking white people say calling you whatever they want. <laughs> Way to prove the point I'm making. You're welcome. I did that on purpose. Yeah, that's what happened. Yes. Death? In New York, most people blame the city itself. In New York, crimes that are most heinous. Committed under the Jesus law. Christ. No. <laughs> Special victims. Yeah. Death? This is where Tammany Hall comes. Tammany. Death? The Triangle Shirtwaist Coat Factory. The shirt Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. It's from. Yeah, the, I don't know where coat. Yeah, we're just, we're must, just adding things now. Online. They're, they're doing. <laughs> it's just getting progressively longer. The Triangle Shirtwaist Manufacturing Company and Sons. What? <laughs> Pants. 